Praise the Lord. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to um, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We've been going through the epistle of 1 John, uh, looking at the beauty of Christ found across its pages. And so far we've seen the beauty of Christ and forgiveness. And of course that great, uh, that great text of 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I said, behold the beauty of Christ in forgiveness. As a matter of fact, the, the origins of this message series was in my own personal devotion in 1 John. As I was going through 1 John, I would say, wow, look, that's pretty beautiful. There's the beauty of Christ there. Oh, look at that. That's the beauty of Christ. Look at that. That's the beauty of Christ. And in my own devotion, I came up with nine different areas in 1 John where we see the beauty of Christ in various elements of our life, in our salvation, and all the others. So as I said, the first week we looked at the beauty of Christ and our forgiveness of sin, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Like we talked about how it isn't the puny sins, it isn't the little white lies, but it is all sin. Last week we saw the beauty of Christ in our confession. We looked at 1 John 1, 9 in particular. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, another amazing thing that in our confession of sin, we find forgiveness of sin. We also learned last week that if anyone sins, 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John goes on to say he himself is our propitiation. Big theological word, right? Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath, to satisfy the justice of God. And this is John the Apostle talking, right? If anyone sins, if we have a transgression, know that we have an advocate with the Father. And I talked about, and I, I really love this point, the 360 God that we serve. And you can see it in Romans chapter 8. If you've been on the Tuesday night Bible studies, we go through Romans chapter 8. I made a big deal about this. But I, it's worth reemphasizing again. The 360 of God. That we have a God who searches the heart and knows what the mind of the heart is. We have a God through the Holy Spirit who intercedes, who prays for us with groanings too deep for words. And we have a Christ, the Savior, the Son, who ever lives to make intercession for the saints. So we see this proactivity of God constantly going on. It is multidimensional. It doesn't take place in time and space. It is perpetual, just as God's nature is perpetual. It always is, it always was. This 360 dynamic of the ever-present proactivity of God constantly on behalf of who on behalf of his children the church christ himself was the propitiation he alone through his sacrifice through his death and through his resurrection he alone satisfied 
the justice of God. And because he did, he can be our advocate. He can be the parakletos. He could be that defense attorney. And I think those are things that when you look at them, you can only marvel because it exceeds the limitations of our finite minds. So today we're going to look at the beauty of Christ in Christian character. And we will see how Christ's new birth equips the believer. It equips the believer to live a glorious and a victorious life that glorifies God. You know, one of the things amazing about this epistle of 1 John is it refutes and it puts to death, and I love that it puts to death, the easy believism that is so prevalent in our day. You know, hey, just accept Jesus. He accepts you the way you are. You know, just, just do this. If you read 1 John, John is constantly assailing and calling out the glorious salvation that we have. And we're not here speaking of sinless perfection because if we spoke of sinless perfection, right, that would go against the very word of God. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we do not see righteousness. We, we do see that righteousness is a characteristic of the believer, but sinless perfection does not exist. John, in John chapter five, uh, 1 John chapter 5, 13 states the purpose of writing this epistle. Listen to what he says here. What's the purpose of it? These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. The purpose of it is to give assurance of salvation to those who otherwise may be led to doubt. And we will see in the verses that we're going to review that John gives that assurance of salvation from the perspective of obedience. Obedience. Obedience to his word, which constitutes a visible, observable, objective evidence that someone is in Christ. And that in doing so, we see the beauty of Christ in Christian character. So open your Bibles again to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. I'll read it through, and then we'll go into the text. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Take a look at verse 3 in this opening term. And by this we know. This is a transitional phase. He's transitioning off of the confession of sin that came in 1 John 1 8 through uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And now he's transitioning. And John uses this to point to a test. There's a test here. It's a test of character. It's a test of your walk. And after sharing that Christ is our advocate for those who sin, and that Christ Jesus is our propitiation, and only Christ satisfies the justice of God, John now points these believers to the test 
of obedience. The test of obedience. In 1 John 1, 3. And notice what he says here. He says, by this, meaning what he's going to say, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Now, I want to share something. True faith is not keeping the commandments unto righteousness. Okay? It's not works of righteousness. True faith is the grace of God that has been shed abroad in the heart of the unbeliever. And as a result of that grace, deeds follow. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Everybody knows it, right? For by grace ye have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we all go, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Amen. But the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10 what? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the Lord had foreordained that we walk in them. Do you see the gist? Verses 8 and 9, the grace of God. Verse 10, the very intent and the very purpose of God. The grace of God is shed abroad, right? That unmerited favor, that empowerment for living, that has been given to the person who comes to Christ in faith and repentance. That empowerment for living. It's not of ourselves. But then the purpose is what? For we are His workmanship. What does His workmanship mean? We have been crafted by God. We have been molded by God. He says we are His workmanship and we were created in Christ Jesus. Christ has created the church. Christ has created the believer so that the believer comes forth and radiates and shows the glory of God. We are His workmanship, not ours. We are His workmanship. We have been modeled, fashioned, and made according to His image. We are His workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus, and we've been created for a very specific purpose. What? For good works. And so sure is that purpose that the Apostle Paul says we're created for good works which God had foreordained in eternity past. God had determined that the elect of God, the saved of God, would bear his image upon the earth, would bear his righteousness upon the earth. So he had determined that the elect, the saved of God, would go forward in good, righteous works that bring glory to God. That's really the gist of it. That God had foreordained that we should walk. We saw in the first week when we talked about the beauty of Christ in forgiveness of sin, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. And what did we say walk is? Walk is the consistent behavior of your life. It is the consistent walking of your life. It's where you abide. Where you abide. If you walk in in the light as christ is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin and paul says the same thing god had foreordained that the righteous that the saved that the believers would walk in good works 
right here in John chapter 3. John is teaching the church a lesson that he learned from the Master himself. Right? As a good disciple does, as a good teacher does, they teach what they have been taught. And John was taught by the Master himself. And John is showing them that it does indeed matter how one conducts their life. It does indeed matter how the Christian conducts their life. And that is a teaching, by the way, that's being much maligned today. Much maligned. Oh, it doesn't matter. Jesus has forgiven me my sin. He knows I'm a sinner. You know, sometimes I hear Christians, two things, two observations. One, sometimes I hear Christians defending their sin so much. Well, God knows. God knows I'm a sinner. He knows. He knows who I am. I was just recently with somebody, and they, they kind of played that thing on me. You know, look, I can't hide. God knows my heart. He knows, you know, but, you know, he loves me none the same. I wouldn't take that one to the bank too much, I'll tell you that, right? And the other one is, when you talk about righteousness and holiness, people say, well, nobody's perfect. You know, no one's perfect. How could you expect me to do this? Blah, 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 God knows my heart, I'm imperfect. Why is it that we defend our sins so much, but we don't defend the holiness of God? Why is it that we like to defend our sins so much, but we don't want to talk about the new birth? Why, don't, why is it that people want to defend their sins so much? And it's always the same thing. And I'll tell you, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I always kind of get taken aback when somebody comes to me with a question like this. Is it a sin to blah and insert whatever sin it is? I get that a lot. I get that a lot. It's probably the number one question I get. Is it a sin to, and just pick your thing. Is it a sin to drink? Is it a sin if my hair touches here? Is it a sin to get a tattoo? Is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to do that? And right away my antennas go up. They can't hide because I have no hair up here, right? So you see, you see the antennas go up. And when I hear that, I'm immediately drawn. And I usually say to a person, I said, now you may want to consider how you're prefacing this question to me. Because when I hear that question, is it a sin too? The next thing I'm going to tell you is that's usually followed by how close can I come to the line without crossing over? And I've had this argument about somebody who told me there's nothing wrong with smoking pot. You know, it's organic. It's a plant. God created it. Didn't he create it in the, in the, in the garden? You know, I said, arsenic is organic too. You're not drinking that, are you? I had a young boy many years ago come to me and tell me, 15-year-old boy kind of wanted to talk and started sharing with me about, you know, well, it's not a sin to have one beer. I said, if you were my son and you have one beer at 15, it'd be a sin. And I said, let me tell you something. Judgment wouldn't come from the Lord. It'd come from me. And I'll tell you something else. I'd break your legs. Is it a sin? Is it a sin to do this? We want to defend our sins. We want to defend our holiness. But what the church needs again is preaching on holiness and righteousness and sanctification. And John the Apostle is doing it right here. Why? Because that's what he learned from Jesus. 
Let me tell you something. Uh, you guys know next week is the anniversary of the church, right? We're you know, going into our ninth year. Praise God. No accidents with God. Remember Dan Garlic? He makes no mistakes. Praise God. Those of you who have been with us from the beginning, boy, we've had our ups. We've had our downs. We've been here, there, and everywhere. And the journey is continuing. Now, if in nine years I could have come up here and every Sunday I could have preached great messages to you, how to be a good business leader, how to make more money, how to use your finances in a godly manner, how to be a great husband, how to be a great wife, how to be great children, how to do all these... I I could have done that. I could have done that. I could have done that. And for eternity, what difference would it have made? Instead, what you've been hearing for nine years is the Word of God preached. Because the number one thing we need to be preoccupied with, the one thing that is going to determine our eternal soul and our destiny is what is the Word that we're believing on and in whom are we believing? Many people sit in churches and they hear message, thematic messages like that week after week after week and it's doing nothing for their eternal soul. One day I'll stand before the Lord and I'll give an account. And the Lord will say, what did you do? What did you preach? And so we preach the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. I want to preach it so much until you get sick of it. I want to preach it so much so that it's pouring outside of you. So that when you get into a confrontation, when you get into an issue, when you're under severe temptation, the word of God speaks to you. This is what John's doing here in 1 John. While it sounds good, you know, there's two Gospels in the world that are being declared today. One is the biblical Gospel. One is the worldly Gospel. They both, by the way, sound good. Because Jesus is name-dropped in both of them. And Jesus and salvation, all the biblical terminology is, is based on them. The biblical Gospel declares what God has done for us, and that we exist for Him. The worldly gospel declares God exists for us. The biblical gospel declares that our salvation was procured for us, predetermined for those in Christ Jesus. The worldly gospel declares that salvation is solely the responsibility of man and man's choice. The biblical gospel declares that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that all authority is contained in Scripture alone, and that God receives all the glory alone. The worldly gospel declares that salvation is by man's choice alone, by his decision alone, for man's taking alone, that all authority is in man's will alone, And that man will determine his eternal destiny. The biblical gospel declares God is sovereign in salvation. In the affairs of the world. In the governments of the world. That God is sovereign in all things. And sovereign means God rules in all things. 
The worldly gospel would declare that God is in partnership with man. That man is supreme in his freedom and in his decision-making and in his will. That God plays a supporting role to, to man's happiness and man's contentment and man's desires. These gospels are separate and distinct. I want you to know that. They are separate and distinct. One is true. And one is not true. One is of God and one is of man. One saves and the other cannot save. Lastly, the biblical gospel declares clearly that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 That believers have been born again spiritually by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Put simply, there is I want to emphasize that. There is evidence of the new birth in the believer's character. Obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ's commandments is a demonstration of such evidence. And this John learned from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 15, 10 through 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my, joy in my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now let me ask you something. I want to ask you a serious question. When Jesus makes a statement, as He did in John 14, 23 through 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And he goes on to say, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Do we need a PhD to understand what Jesus means? Do we need to really deep dive? The te I mean, some things are overt, are they not? When you pull up to a red sign that has eight sides, and in white letters it says, stop. You don't seriously think, hmm, what did they really mean by stop? Does it mean that I slow down? Does it mean that if there's no car, Adam Sakopi was just telling us this morning about giving tickets. I'm sure he's heard this argument. But does it mean that if there's no cars, I could go through at 50 miles an hour? 
Do you seriously contemplate that? No, you see the word stop, and if you're a good driver, and I qualify that, you stop, right? If Jesus says, he who loves me keeps my commandments, and he who does not love me does not keep my commandments, I don't think there's much more explanation there. I think it's pretty clear. And we do it because we have been born again. We have been born again. Now, in order to understand the text here in in verse 3, I want to point out there's two key words in this text that you should know about. The first one is to know, and the second one is keep. All right? Now, when it's translated from, from English, it kind of loses some of the meaning. So I want to give you the original meaning. First of all, that word know, we see throughout the, the New Testament. It is gnosko. It is that deep experiential knowledge. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's not static information. It's not bits and bytes of information. Gnosko implies personal intimacy and knowledge. And I've, I've said this many times before explaining this word. A good illustration of Gnosko is Mary when the angel comes to her and, and says to Mary, you know, you're going to bear a son. His name is going to be Jesus. And Mary says to the angel, how shall this be for I have not known a man? And we know what Mary's talking about, right? She didn't have an intimate physical relationship with a man. Mary was a virgin. So that word gnosko is that deep, intimate knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. And that is critical because the believer has come to know Christ by the drawing and the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. In John 6, Jesus makes a statement. No man can come to me unless the Father, what? Draw him. The Father draws him. No man can come to me unless the Father draws you. So we know that if anyone is in Christ, you have been drawn, you have been, I hate to use this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. You have been wooed by the Holy Spirit. He draws you. Everybody who has been saved has been drawn by the Holy Spirit to Christ. And believers are drawn to that through the the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to Christ as a result of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. When God opens your eyes to believe and He calls you to Himself, we hear that call and we respond. One of my favorite hymns is a hymn of John Wesley, And Can It Be? I love it. One of the stanzas in Ann Canopy really illustrates this perfectly. It says, long my, in prison in spirit, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. In other words, God sent forth the light, right? I, and he says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I, um, my dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off my heart was free i rose went forth and followed thee that's salvation god 
sends the light. The light flames our dungeon. We are shackled to sin. We're imprisoned to sin. It inflames the dungeon, right? All of a sudden, the shackles fall off. Our heart is free, and we rise, and we go forth, and we follow Christ. That's salvation. But once saved, once saved, the Holy Spirit goes to work immediately in the lives of believers. And he goes to work to illuminate their minds and their heart and their soul with the Word of God. You may have had the experience where you read the Bible, it didn't make any sense to you, you came to faith in Christ, all of a sudden, boom! It starts coming alive, the Word of God, and you're able to apprehend the Word of God by faith. It is the Holy Spirit that gives that illumination, that spiritual illumination, which opens your heart. The Holy Spirit is at work in sanctification. What is that word? Setting the believer apart to Christ. He's alive in sanctification. And by this process, we as believers come to know, gnosko, have that experiential knowledge. We come to know Christ. It is not stale facts. It is not, do you believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords? What does James say? Hey, you do well to believe. I'll tell you what, the demons believe also and they tremble. And as my mentor, my brother Frank says to me, he goes, you know what the difference is between the church today and the demons? I go, what? He goes, the demons tremble. The church doesn't at the knowledge of God. What Scripture refers to as knowing Christ is just that. We have been born again. We have been quickened to life. It is a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit whereby Christ is revealed to us and Christ is revealed in us through the working of the Holy Spirit. So when you see no there in the New Testament, that's what we're talking about. It's not facts. And as I always say, there are many people who know the Word of God, but there are very few people who know the God of the Word. Separate and distinct. I've said this before. The church is becoming textualist. We throw out verses here and there like little magical Christian incantations, not knowing what it is that they even mean. The second key word in verse 3 is keep. And that word means in the original language to guard over. We guard over it. It's, it's, taking, it's militaristic in its termina- uh, uh, terminology. We're standing a post. In the military, when you're standing a post, if you have a watch and you're keeping guard while someone else is watching, it is your responsibility to ensure that if you see any of the enemy encroaching upon the unit, to, number one, notify the unit and to fight back. One of the most serious offenses in the military is falling asleep on watch. Right, Brother Mike? It's a big deal. When you fall asleep on watch, why? Because your whole unit is exposed. So very few people are going to take a watch casually. They're going to make sure in the old days, falling asleep on watch, Mike, correct me on this, I believe was punishable by death, wasn't it? They used to put them before a firing squad. This word keep here, notice verse 3. 
And by this we know, there's the gnosko, that we have come to know him if we keep, we guard over his commandments. John's statement here is that we can have assurance that we know Christ if we are keeping and guarding over the commandments of Christ. This is evidence of the new birth. We see this echoed further down by John in 1 John 5, verses 2 through 3. He says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and that His commandments are not burdensome. By the way, best part of that verse? The end. The command isn't burdensome. Oh, i got to go to church today. Oh, i got to do this. Oh, i got to do that. That's not the love of God. The love of God is, hey, I'm willing to do this. And herein lies the beauty of Christ. Christian character. If we're walking right with Christ, our character is reflecting Christ. He's going forth. It's shining forth. People are looking at you going, what is the deal with you? Are you a believer? Like what? And you go, yeah. Absolutely I am. Obedience is an evidence of the new life that is ours in, in Christ. Now a question we all got to ask ourselves, can that be said about you? Can that be said about you? Does your life reflect the salvation work, the new birth of Christ? And if not, if your walk, the consistent pattern of your life, if your walk is inconsistent and doesn't reflect the new birth, then what do you need to do? You need to repent and be saved. Cry out to God, save me, lest I die. And by the way, never delay that. If you really feel that, act upon it and call out for the Lord for His salvation. Look at verse 4. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's not me, by the way. So if anybody gets ticked off, don't get ticked off with me. I didn't write it. Is the Apostle John, right? And the Apostle John, by the way, has always been portrayed, hasn't he not? Always been portrayed as meek. You look at some of the, you know, the Middle Age paintings, almost effeminate, right? Because he called himself the disciple whom the Lord loved. But that's the exact opposite of who John was. Jesus had a nickname for John and James, his brother. You know what they were? It wasn't Sissy Mary. It was sons of thunder. They were the sons of thunder. They were the ones that were arguing, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? James or John or Peter? Who's going to be greater? But the, my favorite is when, when, when they went into Samaria and the Samaritans told Jesus to leave and he rebuked them and they went in there and James and John said, hey Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven now upon them? No, meekness wasn't his characteristic. He wasn't effeminate. He wasn't, you know, wimpy. He was a son of thunder. And if you take a look at the way this epistle is being written, you see that son of thunder. He's pulling no punches. Hey, the one who says I've come to know him does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's pretty direct. 
pretty direct. In keeping with his character, John in this verse declares a very black and white truth. A binary truth regarding those who are in Christ. And the truth is simply this. Those who profess Christ, but do not keep or guard over his words, they're liars. And the word truth there, by the way, is an interesting thing. That word truth there, it says the truth is not in them. It's not referring to a spoken truth. It's being referred to a practical truth. What do I mean by that? So those who profess to be a Christian, who profess to know the Lord, but are in perpetual, consistent disobedience, are not living in the reality of that truth. In other words, they're living a fantasy. They've created their own righteousness. But it's not the righteousness of God. As a matter of fact, they've created a God after their own heart. A God is tolerant of their sin. A God who's tolerant of their indifference. A God is, who's tolerant of all the things. They are living in fantasy. And so many who would claim, I've accepted Jesus, but who continue to remain in perpetual disobedience. You could be living in a terrible, terrible fantasy. You can be believing that you're saved when you're not saved. That is the whole purpose of this epistle. By this we know if we keep his commandments. By this we know. This becomes the objective evidence. Patterns of righteousness are evident in people who walk after Christ's righteousness. You know what the problem is? Most people don't walk after Christ's righteousness. They walk after their own righteousness. They do what is right according to their hearts. And that's the awakening that needs to take place. Look at verse 5. And you're going to see a pattern here. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. You see this pattern that's going back and forth? Let me show you a few things, right? There's this pattern where the Apostle John states a problem and states the remediation. Go back to chapter 1. Look at, starting with verse 6. Here's a problem stated. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and, and, and do not practice the truth. There's the problem statement. Look at the solution. The resolution to the problem. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Problem, resolution. Look at verse 8. If we say we have uh, no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Problem statement. Verse 9, resolution. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look at the resolution. 2-1. 
My little children, I am writing you these things that, if anyone, uh, that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here we go again. Verse 3 puts the emphasis on obedience. Verse 4, problem statement. The one who has come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Resolution, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. You see how John is writing? He is reiterating the same points from many different angles. But he's pointing out, here's the problem, here's the solution. We do that with the proclamation of the gospel. Here's the problem. All people are sinners. All fall short of the glory of God. All uh, all of their righteous work is as filthy rags. Solution. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Problem solution. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Solution that the world through him might be saved. Contrast. Compare. Problem solution and we see this pattern going on here in verses four and five we see the same thing and in verse five john pursues the remedy slightly deepened deeper i want to call your attention to the phrase a key phrase and a key word in him the love of god and the word perfected in verse five In Christ is a significant phrase we see all over the New Testament. Paul uses it, John uses it. It signifies our position in Christ. What does that mean? It means that the believer is covered within the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we are what? We are in Christ because we're covered with his righteousness. It's a great phrase. Another, another, by the way, favorite word that John likes to use, abide, we're going to see this shortly. But in 1 John, in stating the resolution, he states that one who keeps the word, the love of God is perfected. That love of God is demonstrated in the believer. Actually, the Greek translation would probably render it better the, uh, better the term, the love of God, for the love for God. The love for God is demonstrated. And this is the love that God has perfected. And that word perfected means that it has been completed. It has reached its end stage. It has been finalized. It is finalized once and for all. So look at that verse. But whoever keeps his word, who keeps the word of God, in him the love for God has been truly completed. It's finalized. That's an amazing statement. It's the evidence of the new birth. That's the test. People want to say, I want assurance of salvation. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. Take them to 1 John. Say here, read 1 John. Do you walk in the light as he is in the light? Do you confess your sins? 
Do you know that Christ is your advocate, that He is your propitiation? Do you know if you say you have no sin, you make Him a liar? Do you know if you, if you don't keep His Word, if the pattern of your life is habitual disobedience, that you probably got a problem on your hands? We have been speaking of the beauty of Christ and Christian character, and we can see that the beauty of the lives of those who live according to the Word of God, whose character reflect the redemptive work of Christ. I know I've said this many times before. Ever meet a Christian? You start talking about the thing, you don't know the person, right? You may not know the person from a hole in the wall. And you meet them, and, oh, you're a Christian? You start talking, and all of a sudden you go deep. And then conversation's over, they depart, and you go, man, what's up with that guy? What's up with that gal? I just felt that connection, that kinship. Why? Because the redemptive work of Christ, the obedience to Christ, comes effusing out of those people. You ever meet a person and say, I'm a Christian? And the first thing you go, really? You're a Christian? What's a sinner look like? It's easy to profess the name of Christ, folks. It's easy to take the name, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. We love the terminology, right? I'll tell you, give me 45 minutes with any stranger, I could culturize them into Christianity like that. Teach them all the buzzwords. Born again, hallelujah, praise the Lord, brother, sister, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is going to be when you see that person persevering. The, the reality is going to see when you see that person's walk. To whom does that person give glory to? The Christian was designed for a purpose. Peter says that we're designed to call out the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we're designed for. We're here to bring glory to God. God is glorified every time someone comes to repentance and faith in him, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and whose lives declare the work of Christ. That is not volitional, and that is not optional. There are elements in that where we can continue to move forward in Christ. But to be born again, to reflect the image. Listen, the Word of God tells us that He is conforming us into the image of His Son. My goodness, if everybody who said there was a Christian said they were the image of Christ and they're being conformed, and you see the rebelliousness with which most people live their life, you go, none of this is real. Now listen, man, I ain't got a, I don't have a drum to beat. I don't have a dead horse to whip. I'm just telling you, we need to come awake to the true gospel. It is the only gospel that has the power to change lives. I shared with you earlier, there's two gospels. One that is about God, one that is about man. They both sound good. If you don't have a discerning ear, you go, well, they're talking about Jesus. He's talking about the need to be born again. Oh, he's saying he was baptized. He's saying he went to heaven. Listen, those aren't the things. The things are, hey, do you want Jesus for Jesus to make your life better? Or do you want to come to Christ to repent because you have offended a holy God who is calling you unto repentance? Those are separate and distinct. You want to see that? Put on any Christian program on TV. 
98% of them. They said, well, they preach the gospel. They talk about come to Jesus to be forgiven for what? So you can get more money? So you can gain more influence? So that you can have your best life now? So that you could be fulfilled? Listen to the object. Listen to the object. Is it about the glory of God? Is it about the glory of man? And you'll know. Verse 6. Here's another problem statement. The one who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner. And I said to you, that's one of John's favorite words. Why is it one of John's favorite words? Because it's one of Jesus' favorite words. John 15, verses 4 through 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abide and abide, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see that last verse? He who abides in me bears much fruit. He doesn't say, he who abides in me doesn't go to hell. He doesn't say, he who abides in me doesn't produce fruit. He only produces fruit if he wants to produce fruit. It's a fatal complete. He is saying, he who abides in me bears much fruit for the kingdom of God. Abiding in Christ is the model for the believer. Believers can abide because they have been justified in Christ. Believers can abide because they've been sanctified in Christ. Believers can abide because they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They have been led by the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let me share something that's very important. Believers can abide in Christ. Why? Because Christ abides in believers. That's why. Not by might, nor by power, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. Did you hear that? Believers can abide in Christ because Christ abides in believers. This is the true gospel. The one that testifies to the regenerative, the new work done in the believer because of the life-changing power of the gospel and it is life-changing john states that those who make a profession that they abide in christ should walk in the same manner as christ walked and he uses an interesting term the king james and new american standard they capture the term it's ought it's ought and what this means it refers to being Morally obligated, indebted. That's what that term means. You're indebted. You're morally obligated. Now think about this. Why are you morally obligated? Because if you have been born again, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, He will drive you to righteousness. That is why you're morally obligated. That's why the Apostle John makes that statement. The one who says he abides in Him ought he's morally obligated himself to walk in the same manner as christ how did christ walk anybody how did christ walk perfect in righteousness in righteousness that's the point the one who professes christ 
ought to walk in righteousness like Christ. Why? Because they've been born again of seed that is not perishable. They've been born from above. John 3, 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is about the new birth. Salvation isn't getting your ticket punched so you don't go to hell. It's about the new birth. It's about the regeneration. It's about the transformation. Many of you, there are some of you here today that can testify to what you were before Christ and who you are after Christ. Believers are obligated to walk as Christ walks since their love for Christ has been perfected and accomplished. So we started out today sharing what the Apostle John said. Here in these opening chapters of the epistles, he's laid out the attest for assurance of salvation. We stated John makes this test very obvious through his terminology. Walking, confessing, know, keep, abide in Christ. As we come to the end of 2.6, as one will see throughout the remainder of the epistle, the one who passes the test are the ones whose lives reflect that redemptive work of Christ. And I submit to you, right here, right here, is the beauty of Christ in Christian character. You see, Christian character reflects that redemptive work. And in reflecting the redemptive work, it brings glory to God. Many people who profess Christ lack an assurance of salvation primarily because they're not walking or abiding in Christ. And their character testifies against them. That's why they have the conflict. But if you are in Christ, and Christ, more importantly, is in you, you can have assurance of salvation as your life manifests the life-changing power of Christ. And you will see, and you will come to know the beauty of Christ in Christian character. For you will know as we started out with this church early on, our, 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 our logo, our statement used to be for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ, and for the glory of the gospel. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you today, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your many blessings. And Father, we ask Lord, that if there be any here, any, Lord, to whom, Lord God, maybe they're locked up in good Christian religion, maybe they know the Word of God, but they don't know the God of the Word, Maybe there are some here in whom, Lord God, the extent of the spirituality is going to go out the door when they leave. And it won't come back until the following week. Father, may you send forth your spirit to convict, to admonish, 
to rebuke, to, re, uh, to exhort, and to save. And may You be glorified, Lord. Let no one, no one, Lord God, leave here not knowing Christ the Savior. Not knowing, Lord, experientially that life-changing process of the Gospel. May they repent. May they turn from their sins. And may they cry out to You, God, save me a sinner. We thank You, Lord, and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.